Now, our students just returned from their week-long mission trip, and, and while they were gone this week, I was thinking of one of the opportunities I had to lead a, a mission trip. This was before I served here at Faith. My wife and I served in, at a, ch- a church in central Pennsylvania, and we were, we were in Michigan for the week, and we were, we were done and about to come home. Now, we'd actually finished our project a little early, so half of my leaders said, let's just drive straight through and get home a day early. The other half of the leaders said, well, let's keep to the original plan. Let's stop overnight. It'll give us time to kind of debrief as a team, and let's just stay to the original plan. Now, since my wife was with me, we didn't have children at the time, it, it didn't really make a difference to me, so I didn't care one way or another, but we were, we were split. And so I did what I never do in, when I was a, a youth pastor. I let the students actually have a say. I put it to a vote. And so I I made the case for why getting home a day early would be good for us, and then I made the case of why, why staying to the original plan would be good. Now, we ended up deciding to stick with the original plan, and, but I, I felt pretty good about how I'd kind of laid this all out until the leaders who wanted to get home early and had lost the vote came to me complaining. It was totally unfair the way you presented that. You were clearly one-sided and wanted, you, you, you forced everybody to vote the way they did. And I was a little taken aback as a young, a young pastor, and I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I didn't, until I had leaders who wanted the opposite, who came to me complaining, saying, it was totally unfair the way you presented it. You presented the other side. And then I realized, well, maybe I've, maybe I've been successful here. Everybody is mad at me. Isn't that the definition of pastoral ministry? No, because sometimes, sometimes, you want to be purposefully ambiguous. I really didn't want anyone to know my position, and honestly, it didn't really matter to me. So I thought, here I am, this wise pastor who has clearly said it before so that the choice is really left to the group. Now, to make sure I didn't get too arrogant in my great wisdom, we did keep to the original plan, which meant we stopped at a state park to go swimming, and I took our 15-passenger van, the rental van, and I crushed someone's sports car with it. And it was my last day of work. I turned in the keys and said, I'm off to seminary. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I, I did great with our church van. I've never crushed anyone else's car. Um, but God humbled me because I had to walk up and down the beach there at the state park saying, do you own this sports car? No, but I watched you back it into that. I watched you crush it with your van. Yes, that's why I'm walking up and down the beach humbly. Now, That's probably an illustration for another day, but you've already gotten it now. But really, really, sometimes the the ambiguity, sort of presenting both sides simultaneously, is is really the intent. And and I think that's where we are here in, in 1 Kings 9. Because when I read it, is Solomon a hero or a failure? Now, if we rewind to chapter 8, we have a clear answer. He is the king standing to mediate before his people. God's presence is here. If we fast forward to chapter 11, then we will know the failure of Solomon because we've, we've made the turn. The turn from the heights of, of Solomon's reign to his failures, we begin to see the cracks here. Because the, you, you notice the way this, the passage began, with the appearance of the Lord, the Lord speaking to Solomon. He reminds Solomon of the promise that he made to David, but, but you heard it. This promise is a conditional promise. The promise that Solomon will have his descendants on this throne is conditional. If Solomon obeys, if his sons obey after him. And so we're left with the question, will 
Will Solomon obey? Can Solomon obey? Because on the one hand, we, we see clearly in this passage the king's success. I mean, you, you heard the repetition of the verb build through this passage. It was ten times in this chapter that Solomon built the temple, that Solomon built these cities. We, we see that Solomon has completed all of the projects. Look at, look, at the way, look at the way verse 10 describes it. At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built these two buildings, the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, it's, it's here in this context that Solomon is accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish. We're even told in, in verse 19 that whatever he desired to build was done whether it was in Jerusalem or in, or in Lebanon or throughout all of the territory that he ruled, everything, everything was accomplished just as Solomon wanted it done. And so we see the, the king extending the, the kingdom. We see the gold which Hiram, the king of Tyre, brings as tribute, the gold which has been used to build the temple of the Lord. The, the chapter ends with, with the Israelites now not merely... Uh, a people of the land, but a people now building ships and heading out onto the sea, which is unusual in the Old Testament. Normally, it's the other nations, which are the, those, the seafaring peoples. Israel is a people of the land, but, but the kingdom is, is so expansive. There's so much peace that Solomon can now build ships and send his men out as sailors. And what do they do? They bring back even more gold, piles and piles of gold, the king's success. We see Solomon building, not just here in Jerusalem, but look at the description in verse 15. He builds a, a, a fortress up in Hazor, in the north, in the, in the Golan, to protect Israel from the north. He, he builds the, the fortress at Megiddo. You know the name of that town, the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, that place w through which all of the nations will pass, that very important place on the, on the, on the roads. He builds there, and, and even Gezer, which protects the approach of, of Jerusalem. He, he builds this city. You can, you can go and see the fortifications there, the ones that Solomon built, the, the great gates that he built during this time. He has fortified the people, protected them. We're even reminded that, that all of the building which, which took place, none of it used the, the forced labor of Israel. Look at verse 22. The, the writer here clearly wants to make sure we understand Solomon is doing the right thing. Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were given more significant jobs, the jobs of the overseers, the jobs of the warriors and officials. His people were not conscripted into labor. The, the chapter, the author of 1 Kings wants us to see what Solomon has done. And notice the, the description, not only, of his, not only of his military might, his financial power, but notice his religious work. Look at the very positive view that, that we're given of, in verse 25. Three times a year, Solomon sacrifices the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. That's the exact pattern that God had given the people. Solomon, we're told in verse 25, fulfilled the temple obligations. Here is the king being a true and successful king. There is peace. There is benefit to the people. There is true worship taking place. The king has brought peace, wealth, and protection. But at the same time as we, as we read through this chapter, we begin to see hints of Solomon's failure. It will become explicit for us in chapter 11, but we, we, we see the cracks beginning to form even here. Notice his interaction with, with Hiram. We see that Solomon is clearly the, 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 the greater man, 
Hiram is forced to bring tribute. It, yes, there's this treaty, but, but Hiram is the weaker one because when Solomon gives him these towns and Hiram goes out to look at them, this is a terrible deal. And yet Hiram can do nothing about it. So yes, it's, it's pointing us to Solomon's greatness, but it's also showing us the king was meant to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and yet they're taking advantage of this nation. And, and think about it. What has Solomon given away? These are towns in the promised land. This is the promised land of God. The covenant king of Israel is giving it away. That's not how a king should act. Or even, even think of the description. Look at verse 19. The description of, of all of these building projects. Solomon builds these store cities and towns for his chariots and his horses. And we've seen already through this series the, the reminder that the king was not meant to put his trust in chariots or in horses. And even that phrase, that phrase about store cities, cities where you would store your wealth and, and, and for the needs of the people, that phrase is, is used only one, one other time in, in the Old Testament, and it's back at the beginning of Exodus, when the people are slaves and they are forced to build store cities for Pharaoh. And the forced labor. The forced labor of verse 20. Yes, it's very clear in verse 22 that, that he's protected the Israelites from this, but, but the, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these descendants who are, who are there, they are the ones who are, who are being conscripted into labor. Verse 21 tells us that, that these are the people whom the Israelites could not exterminate. Because you remember, what was supposed to have taken place? Who was supposed to have dealt with these people? Joshua. The conquering armies of Israel were meant to come in and, and kill everyone. Destroy the, the pagan peoples of the land. Now this is one of the places where, where if you're a follower of uh, if, if you trust in these scriptures, this is one of those places where you feel like you might have to swallow hard. You want everyone killed? That seems unfair, unjust. And, and maybe it even leaves you, leads you to think, maybe there is something to that claim. Maybe this is even a claim you would make, that, that all religions lead to fanaticism and violence. And so isn't, isn't the Bible just filled with that kind of truth? And yes, this is violence against a pagan people. But, but we need to remember, what is, what is God doing here? This isn't a repeated pattern given, given to the, the church today. No one today can use violence and, and claim it was done appropriately and in God's name. It would always be wrong. This was a, a once-in-history inbreaking of God's coming future judgment. Because one day, all the nations, every person on earth will be judged. And here at this point in history, God used his covenant people to bring judgment against these pagan peoples. And even the judgment itself was, was for Israel meant to be a blessing. Because there would be no dangers here of false worship, the worship of the, the pagan Canaanite gods. The conquest was meant to be a blessing to the people. And yet Solomon can't deal with it. Actually, there is a king, though, in this chapter that, that does deal with pagan cities. It was, it was that little aside. In, in, in my translation, it's actually put in parentheses, as if the, the translators recognized that, that we're moving along in a straight line, and then, oh yeah, 
with the mention of Gezer, that city that, that's down the, the, the mountains into, t- toward the sea that, that protects the road up to Jerusalem, you remember what happened at Gezer. Gezer is where Pharaoh, this is what verse 16 tells us, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, came and destroyed the whole city. He set it on fire. He killed its Canaanite inhabitants so that he could give it as a wedding gift to his daughter, who was married to Solomon. I mean, do, you, do you see the irony of that? The, the Israelite king Solomon is giving away the kingdom to Hiram. He's unable to deal with the problem of the Canaanites in the land, but the pagan king Pharaoh, he's actually acting closer to what a biblical king should have done. He's actually dealing with the problem. The, the, the irony is, is set for us that Solomon is not acting like a true king. One, it, it's, it's there in that verse, isn't it? Solomon has married Pharaoh's daughter, a princess of Egypt, a worshiper of false gods. Solomon has turned away and worshiped her. We're told in verse 24 that, that he builds her a palace, a palace there in the city of David. He constructs the supporting terraces. She is given a, a place of prominence in his kingdom. And even the, the, the whole context of this chapter reminds us, reminds us of, of Solomon's decision here. Because we were told back in verse 2 that this was the second time the Lord had appeared to Solomon, just as he had appeared to him before at Gibeon. Now, we, we'd have to jump back to chapter 3, and you, you can flip there if you'd like, where, where in chapter 3, at Gibeon, the Lord appears to Solomon the first time. And he, and he says to Solomon, Ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And what does Solomon ask for? In his wisdom, he asks for wisdom. And God, we're told it back in chapter 3, that the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so the Lord blesses Solomon. That, that's the first time the Lord appeared to him. But, but what was the context? I mean, we, we have to see it again in chapter 3. Even there where the Lord is pleased with Solomon, the, the writer of 1 Kings won't let us get away with a, with a mere uh, pat on the back for Solomon because the chapter, chapter 3 begins like this. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. That's an unwise thing for an Israelite king to do. It may seem politically, militarily wise, but he's meant to trust in the God of the covenant. And we're, we're told in chapter 3 that, that he brought Pharaoh's daughter into the city of David until he finished building the, the, the palace and the temple of the Lord, the wall and, around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. You see, even in this moment in chapter 3 of Solomon's greatness, of asking for wisdom, the, the author is reminding us, yes, but this is the man who makes alliances with pagan kings. This is the king who married Pharaoh's daughter, and it's repeated for us in our chapter, chapter 9. See, chapter 9 offers us a summary of King Solomon's reign, but the assessment is, is mixed. Yes, we can go through, and we, we've, we've seen the evidence of the success of Solomon, but we also see the brokenness, the prelude to the fall which will come in chapter 11. And think of it. Up to this point in his life, Solomon has made almost all of the right choices. And yet, what does God say to him? Walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness. 
say, I don't know, what, I, I, I don't know where you'd place yourself on the, on the timeline of your own life. But even if, you, even if you feel like you're nearing the end of the timeline, it's not, a, it's not a, a moment in life to just kind of put up your feet and say, I've done enough. I've been good until now. I mean, don't you see? Solomon, even here, nearing the end of his life, is being told by the Lord, today, today, choose right now to follow after me. Choose now to live in obedience. Because that call for, for obedience, the, the fall can come very near the end. That call to obedience is one that, that's required of us every day. It's a persistent, continuing, returning call. Obey the Lord. Follow after the Lord in obedience. And so for each one of us, whether you're near the beginning of life, you're somewhere in the middle or you, you know you're nearing the end, the call today is to obey. And the issue is not merely the outward actions of our lives. It's not merely how big our kingdom is, how much gold we've accumulated. And this chapter makes clear that it's, it's more than that. Because what is the Lord after? He's after the heart of the king. We, we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 8, back in verse 58, chapter 8, 58, the, the blessing of Solomon on the people, a prayer to the Lord where he says, may the Lord turn our hearts to him. May the Lord turn our hearts to him to walk in his ways so that we might keep the commands, decrees, and regulations he gave to us. See, Solomon is praying that God will turn their hearts back to him, turn their hearts to the Lord. And then in our chapter, verse 3 tells us, I have heard the prayer and plea you made before me. Solomon prays and the Lord answers. The Lord is after Solomon's heart. Look at verse 6. What is the warning given? If you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel. What is the warning? What are they not to do? To go off and serve other gods and worship them. They're not to turn their hearts toward false gods in idolatry. He, he repeats it again in verse 9, that when the, when the punishment comes, people will say that they have forsaken the Lord their God. The God who brought them, their fathers out of Egypt, they have embraced other gods worshiping and serving them. See, the Lord is after Solomon's heart. Idolatry is the issue here. See, verse 25, Solomon's outward conformity to the, the patterns of obedience is not enough if his heart is turned away from God. And so Solomon, it's easy to begin to see the sin in his life. Here's a man accumulating tons of gold, sending out ships to bring back more, we see his desire for wealth in the way that it can turn his heart away from God. We see the, the expansion of his power, willing now to take advantage of, of lesser kings and of the nations, willing to enslave those around him, his power taking control over his own life. We see the lure of, of sex in his life, willing to, to, for political purposes, again, back to the power, but it has the side effect of, of being pleasurable for Solomon. He takes Pharaoh's daughter, into his home, into his life. See, even the best things in life can become idols. Really, they make the best idols because they're meant for our good and we, we turn good things and we, we exalt them. And so you may not climb the hills 
to bow before a physical idol, although that is increasingly common in our culture and in common throughout many parts of the world where we bow before a physical idol. But you bow your heart before other things. See, it's easy to see the sin in Solomon's life. One, because his life is so big and extravagant. And so, of course, we can see that, Solomon, when is enough enough? I think you have enough gold. But it's harder to see it in our own hearts, isn't it? I mean, our deacons pressed us today to be giving, giving us a, a tool to, to make plans to give regularly and consistently through, through online giving. But they're not merely pressing us to, to follow a, a, a pattern of, of, of using a, a tool. They're, they're really looking to press us press into our hearts. That's the, one of the roles of the deacons in our congregation is to press us in the joy of, of giving generously. See, for many of us, we might give, but we give, well, let me, let me wait and see what the ship brings in. Let me see how much gold I have. As long as I'm comfortable, then I'll give a little bit extra, a little bit off the top maybe to God. See, the Bible is calling us to give sacrificially, joyfully, to, to hold the things of this life with, with open hands, and yet, and yet you and I, we, we clench our fists over the things of this life. It's easy to th- see the sin of, of power in Solomon's life because he has so much of it. And so it would be easy for him to, to misuse it. But what about the power in your life? The desire for control over your circumstances? The way we cling to our plans and our hopes? Or when you look around at our culture, it's, it's not hard to see the sin of 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 false sexuality, of, of using sex for our own pleasure, for our own power, for our own position. But do you see it in your own life, in your own heart? Are you willing to examine your heart? Because that's what God is, is doing here. God is exposing the idolatry of our lives. Solomon begged for forgiveness in chapter 8, and God comes and says, beware of the idols of your heart. See, this warning is a gracious warning. It's meant to turn us from sin and turn us back to God. And so, so even here, seeing the failure of the king, seeing the idols of our own heart, we, we realize we need a, a better king. Cracks are beginning to appear in the story of, of Solomon. He was the mediator who stood between God and the people and brought the blessing of God to them. But he needs God's forgiveness himself. He provided access to temple worship so that sacrifices could be brought, but, but he himself is a sinner. And so we need a successful king, a true mediator, a perfect sacrifice. See, we already know. We already know that Solomon is not going to succeed. You know it because chapter 11 is coming quickly. But you know it even sooner than that because you look at your own heart and think, how could anyone... How could anyone keep the commands of God perfectly? And even here, we're here at the dedication of the temple. The temple has just been finished, we're told. And God already says, it's going to be taken away from you. It's just been given, and there's the warning, it will be lost. And so how do we avoid Solomon's fall? See, we need a savior, a king who always made the right choice. We need one of the sons of Solomon to fully obey, to keep the conditions that God has laid out here, to be the one who, who perfectly obeys the commands of God, and we have it in Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of Solomon. I mean, think of, think of the way the gospel writers describe the, the work of Jesus on our behalf. It, at the very beginning of his ministry, he's taken by the devil and he's tempted. 
He's taken to this city, to this temple which has been rebuilt in the time of Jesus. The the devil takes him up to the pinnacle and says, throw yourself down, God will catch you. You're the one with all power and authority. Just worship me. And then he shows him the, the kingdoms of the world. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms, not merely the kingdom of Solomon, but all of the kingdoms of the world. Not just the the gold that Solomon could have accumulated, but all of the gold of the world. And says, Jesus, it's yours. Just bow in worship to me, and I'll give it all to you. And yet, when faced with these temptations, we know what Solomon has done. But when faced with these temptations, Jesus puts his trust in God's word. Jesus is the one who is perfectly obedient who always does what is right. The, the Apostle Peter describes the ministry of Jesus for us. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're told that Jesus Christ suffered for you. And then Peter quotes the Old Testament, quotes the prophet Isaiah, he says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted to him. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, the king, the true king, Jesus, perfectly obeyed. No deceit, no falsehood was found in him. He died on the cross, on the tree, to pay the penalty for your sins. So that, what does Peter say? You might die to sin. And you might live in righteousness. And for the righteousness of God. And so how will you respond? 1 Kings 8 tells us how to respond. Who's the example given to us? Look back at verse 4 of 1 Kings 9. The Lord says to Solomon, As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did. David is your example. Wait, wait, David is the example? David, the king who, who sat on the roof of his palace and looked down and took a beautiful woman who belonged to another man, and stole her for himself, for his own pleasure, that David, David who then lied and murdered to cover it up, that David is your example of of how to follow God? See, because you have the true king, the the true son of David, who has perfectly obeyed, then what is demanded of you is, is to live like David did. Because what did David do when he was confronted with his sin? When the prophet came to him, David agreed with the judgment of God. I am a sinner who deserves to be punished. I am one who deserves the the judgment, which I've already seen fall on the peoples of, of Canaan. I deserve death and punishment. That's what David did. He turned away from his sin and turned back to God, asking for forgiveness. That's the example. That's how you are meant to respond. Because you have a true king, Jesus, who has perfectly obeyed. So what you are called to do is admit your failure, agree with the judgment, the one who judges justly, the one who has placed your sins on Jesus. The punishment has been paid, and so forgiveness is offered to you. 
See, the way to deal with idolatry in your heart is to expose the idol and then to put the idol down and to cling to Jesus, to find something, someone of greater value than the things of this world. Jesus himself, you're being asked to turn from your idolatry, to give up your sin to Jesus, to give up your idols and follow Jesus. When we think of someone who has the luxury of sailing around the world, we probably imagine the fabulously wealthy, someone like Solomon leaving from his port. But for Eric and Charlotte Kaufman, their opportunity, their decision to sail around the world was costing them everything. They sold their house. They were going to live here. All of their wealth, everything was invested in this sailboat, this 35-foot sailboat. They took all of the precautions. They were, they were trained sailors. They, they had all the safety equipment they would need for their family. And as experienced sailors crossing the Pacific Ocean, you expect to hit bad weather. You even expect to get, the way they describe it, broached, which is sailing language for a wave pushing your boat onto its side, although just for a few seconds until it rights itself. And so here they are in the midst of a storm where they have been thrown on their side. They're taking on water, but that's not their real problem. The real problem is their daughter is sick. They'd used the satellite phone they had with them in, in the previous days to get the doctor's prescription. They had the medication on board, but she's not responding. The fever will not break. And so they have to call. What's the next step? What's the plan? And they, they use the satellite phone. And suddenly in the storm, it's not working. They would find out later their provider had upgraded the SIM cards and mailed everybody the new copy. The problem is if you're using a satellite phone, you're probably not easily accessible by postal mail. So now they don't have the, the satellite phone, but that's okay. They've taken all the precautions. They're prepared for this, and they have a long-range radio. Except the long-range radio is not working, for the water they took on when they were broached has destroyed the batteries. But again, they have taken precautions. And so they have their emergency position indicating radio beacon, their EPIRB. If they push this button magically through satellite technology, their exact location will be, will be sent to rescuers, and they will be rescued. But it will cost them everything. For when you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, when rescuers come, they don't offer to tow you back. And they aren't willing to leave your sailboat bobbing here in shipping channels. And so Eric knows that if he pushes this button, he will be forced when he steps onto the rescue boat to sink his own boat, to watch all of his dreams sink to the bottom of the ocean. But he says that it actually that, was, that wasn't a hard choice at all. His daughter is sick. They are weeks away from getting to a doctor without pushing this button. And so he does. And they're rescued. But he then had to cut the lines and sink his dream. Could you? Could you give up everything? 
for rescue? Can you give up your dreams, your idols, the things you hold most dear? Will you? Because that's what Jesus is offering you. Jesus, the one who gave up everything for you, now says, come and cling to me. Turn away from the idols of this life. Turn away because you are helpless. See, for Eric, it became an easy decision. It was the only hope. Jesus is telling you this is your only hope. To put your trust in him, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for rescue. You have a Savior who gave himself for you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is, is honest with us. Lord, it, I admit at times brutally honest as your spirit exposes our sin. And yet I thank you for doing that work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help those of us who have put our trust in Christ to set aside the idols of this life, to cling to Jesus. Lord, let us follow the biblical example to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. And Father in heaven, if there are those here who have not yet done that, not yet acknowledged Jesus to be their king, their savior, their rescuer, that even now as the service comes to a conclusion, that having heard your word, they would respond by faith, putting their trust in you. Lord, you are the God who rescues. You are a faithful God. You have sent your Son to be our King, our true and glorious King, who gave himself for us. And so, Lord, we rejoice. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.